Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at www.restorationlex.com slash this week. So when we moved into our house where we live right now uh, five years ago, one of the first things I noticed as we opened up one of the doors, the closets, is that inside on the frame of the door, there was still the markings of whether where children had grown. And, you know, you put the line, you put the date and the number of inches. How many people did that or do that or have that in their homes? I remember we did at my great-grandparents' house. If you go there right now, and we haven't been there in a long time because they no longer live there, but you probably still see the faded markings of me growing up and how tall I was at certain points. And we didn't paint over it. It just felt kind of special. And in fact, we did it for our kids too in their bedroom on the wall right there. You can see where they're, where they're growing and how fast they're growing. And they are growing very fast. And they're eating lots and lots of food um, all the time. So they're very excited about today as well. Um, it was reminding me though, as as I saw that, I just had this like nostalgic moment of remembering that what it used to look like to know how you grow, what it used to look like to feel like you're progressing somewhere and knowing how to measure what it actually means to grow. This is true for individuals. It's also true for churches. As people grow and mature, so do churches. They grow and mature as well. So for us, it's important to clearly define, even celebrate as a church, what it actually means to grow. And that's a question I want to ask together today as we gather together sitting around these tables. An important question for our church and really for any church is that what does it mean for us, restoration, to grow? What does that mean? In other words, how do we measure the maturity of a church? I think that's what the passage today is asking us, our lectionary passage. It gives us, I think, a clarity to this question as we look at it together. First Corinthians, if you read this letter as a whole, it's a reminder that for as messy of a church experience as you may have had in the past, it could still get messier. First Corinthians is wild, y'all. If you read through some of that, it's like a Bravo TV show happening at that church There was some wild stuff happening going down there. And Paul is addressing this. He writes two letters to them that we know about, both calling this new community of believers to a deeper maturity in Christ, what we just heard there. That's where our passage begins in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that we just heard. But I want to look at it here again on the screen and unpack this together and ask this question. It says, brothers and sisters, I cannot address you as... As people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet even ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Now, Paul is addressing a collective spiritual immaturity. And the picture he gives is there are people who are spiritual infants. They're just still on milk. They're drinking milk. They should have solid food. They should be eating like adults, but spiritually, they are still babies. And worse, he calls them worldly. Now, worldly is one of those sick burns, sick church burns that you can throw out on people. 
You are worldly. Other translations you might have out there, it might call it people of the flesh. Now, what does it mean to be worldly? It means really to live out of our impulses. At heart, a person who is worldly has a life that has turned inward upon itself. It's a me-centered, self-saturated, reactionary life that elevates our unredeemed and, and distorted desires to the place of God. That's what it means to be worldly. It turns us away from God and others by turning all of ourselves inward upon what we want more than anything else. And Paul is clear here that their worldliness is seen in how they treat one another. We like to throw out that worldly tag for the people who sin but don't sin like us. But the clear way that Paul is defining worldly is directly tied to how people are being treated in the church. Richard Velotis, he speaks about this in terms of sin and how we define sin. He defines it as, at its core, failure to love. He writes, if, if the greatest commandment given by Jesus is rooted in love, the greatest sin, and perhaps all sin, must in some way be the rejection of this command. This is what, it, what makes sin so pernicious. It orients us inward. It curves us in on ourselves. And in doing so, it uproots love and goodness and beauty and kindness. Sin is not just a violation of law. It's the disruption of love. Christians have often loved to weaponize this idea of what it means to be worldly as if it's always them but never us. And depending on your cultural environment or the church background that you came up, came up from, you know how to call someone worldly and why to call them worldly because it's usually their sin is different than yours. But in truth, when we fail to love, we are by very definition worldly. And guess what? The best way to disguise that kind of worldliness that we have is by wrapping it up in some nice religious self-righteousness. Wrapping it up in taking a stand for truth. This seems to be the case of what's happening here in the Corinthian church. Let's, let's continue reading here what it says. It says, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not Mere human beings? I mean, what after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Now, we don't know much about Apollos. He's not mentioned that often in the New Testament. Uh, what we do know is that he was an influential teacher and leader in the early church. Some early Christian writings suggest that he was a leader in the Corinthian church for some time. But according to one of the church fathers, Jerome... The church became, in Corinth, so divided that Apollos just straight up moved out of the country, left 293 miles away, and only returned later on when the church found a greater sense of unity. The church was so bad, he said, I'm out of the country. I cannot even be in the same country as these people. That's how bad it gets. Have you had an experience? I don't want you to know if you've had an experience like that. No. That's how bad it was. And imagine a church being that 
painful in their disunity. But what we see here in 1 Corinthians are that there are factions that are being formed around particular leaders. There's team Apollos and there's team Paul. And what we see is spiritual immaturity that's taking form in these very distinct ways. First, Paul and Apollos represent the timeless temptation of turning our leaders into mascots of making them stand-ins for our own spiritual journey. These are kind of like the first Christian pastor celebrities here. They are the ones who are standing out front. They have a platform. They have a following. In her book, Celebrities for Jesus, Caitlin Beatty, she defines what celebrity is as social power without proximity. And I think that's very important for how we understand ourselves today. What's the difference between having a leader and having a mascot? What's the difference between having a leader and having a stand-in for where you are? And I think the answer is in that word proximity. Because in the same letter in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul writes these words, these very, very important words for our understanding of leadership. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Paul is not just offering his version of Christianity to the church. Paul is actually offering himself. Paul is saying, as I step into following Jesus, follow me with all the warts and the blessings and the hurts and the pains that I walk through. Watch me as I follow Christ and follow Christ as I do as well. We need less Christian mascots and more Christian leaders, men and women, don't we? We need more people who are present in proximity that we can look to and say, I'm following them as they follow Christ, their example. They are an imperfect example, but they are a living example. We need church fathers and mothers who are willing to go out front, not in some grand gifting from a stage, but in the simple example of their lives that say, follow me as I follow Christ. Amen? And from what I could tell from the Corinthian church, they turned Paul and Apollos into these mascots, but they did it for their cause. They're weaponizing their loyalty to divide the church. And this is the immaturity that Paul's actually drawing our attention towards. It's, it's true then, and I think this is true for us now, that spiritual immaturity in the church is concerned more with being right than it is being reconciled. It's more concerned with how I get my side to win than it is how we can come together in the unity of the Holy Spirit. That's spiritual immaturity. More concerned about how right I am than how loving I am. It parades this doctrinal purity and this righteous indignation around. It defends God when God is not asked to be defended. I love Stanley, Stanley Harawa says that the moment you know you are defending God, you know you're defending an idol because God does not need to be defended. In John, John 13, Jesus gives this very different picture. He tells us that what we'll be known by our love for one another, right? That our literal apologetic in the world is how people can look at the way we love one 
another. He tells us in John 17, just a few chapters later, that, that by our unity, the world will know that he was sent by the Father. We don't gather together today and sing they'll know they are Christians by their rightness. No. It is the love that we share around tables like this and relationships that Jesus defines as the primary apologetic we have in the world. We should be visibly loving, visibly, tangibly, noticeably loving to the world around us. In the Corinthian church, they're seemingly far more concerned about how right they are and their side is than being reconciled. And Paul calls that what it is. He calls it worldly. Now, you may put some religious language on it. You may get all hot and bothered about it. You may make a real mean Facebook post about it. But Paul says, you're worldly. And yet, this division, I think it speaks to something deeper for us, to what I think is one of the most radical callings that we have as the body of Christ. A, a calling that I want to talk about as we close today that really speaks to even just being around these tables today. I'm going to close out where we looked at in this passage. Paul continues. He says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. You see, the biggest problem with having Christian celebrities and the problem of turning our leaders into mascots isn't just idolatry. It's that it misses the most radical vision of the church, and that is what we call the priesthood of all believers, that the Holy Spirit has not been poured out on the professionals and the select few. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on all of us for the sake of the church. God is not growing platforms. He's growing people. And what it means to grow a church is to grow people and not platforms. He is building us together. He calls us God's field, God's building. This church is not focused on then the select few, but on those who gather together for the common gift of what God is doing as one. Later in chapter 3, Paul writes this. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? You yourselves, us, y'all in our language, are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. Listen to those four words again. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. In other words, and I hope you know this loud and clear today, there is no professional class of Christians there is no caste system in the kingdom of God. You don't reach a higher level at some point. You don't graduate to professional Christianity. There is only us. All things, Paul says, are yours. All things in God's spirit are yours. 
The same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead now dwells in you. And what I love about this Holy Spirit, it's the same Holy Spirit's in the Pope. It's the same Holy Spirit's in this single mom that can't make it to church today because she's got to work. Same spirit. The same spirit that is in the sweet older lady singing hymns in a nursing home today as it is with a Grammy-winning worship band. It does not matter. The same spirit dwells within us. The Holy Spirit dwells in the whole church, in you, in me, and not just the select few. And that is, I would say, my friends, good news, right? It is good news that that's in you. Later in 1 Corinthians 12, as the letter progresses, as he's maturing the church in his writing, he says there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, to each one, when he says each one, guess what? He means you, each one. The manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Same Spirit, different giftings. Same Spirit, unique expressions in each one of us. Verse 7 makes this clear, too. It's for the common good. You're gifted by God's Spirit for all of us together. This isn't the X-Men. We're not given special powers so we can go off and shoot people with our Holy Spirit stuff. We are given these gifts to love one another. That's how God has empowered us in order to love. Which brings us back to this question as we close, as we begin today. Where, what does it mean for us to grow? And it's a simple question, and it's a question that in a room like this, I want to be abundantly clear. Although there's certainly not a bad thing for us to gather in a room like this, what measures growth is not always going to be seen in a room like this. What measures growth in the church is something I believe deeper. I think that Paul is speaking here. We measure growth not by the size of our platform, not by the size of our room, not by the number of people that come in here, even though there's nothing wrong with that. And sure, we want more people to come to church, but by empowering our people, that's growth. We are growing as a church when you are more empowered and sent and equipped for the ministry where you are. And listen, I say that today clearly telling you we're not there yet. But I want to be. I want to be. We're learning and, and figuring this out even as elders and leaders, what it looks like right now to move into a place and a people who equip and empower you for the work of the ministry where you are. That the Holy Spirit would be poured out and experienced and lived, not just in rooms like this, but where God has sent you in that midst. To go out and love your neighbor with these giftings, to be about the business of God's restoring love where we are. And oftentimes, in fact, most often, it doesn't happen on a stage up here. For some of us, it does. I'm so glad for the giftings of the people who sing and lead us in worship. Amen? I'm so grateful for that, for those who lead and pray and run sound and graphics. But a lot of times, you don't get to see the Holy Spirit at work, but it's still happening. It's like my friend Stephen Wiggins who's using it, his, the Holy Spirit in him with artistry and printmaking. It's, it's like Miss Evelyn bringing food and keep bringing me cakes and things like that. That's the Holy Spirit. 
It's like behind the scenes, Jessica being a wizard with communication and helping us out with organization behind the scenes. It's, it's our, one of our DNA groups getting here at 8 this morning and helping us set up and get the church ready. The Holy Spirit empowering people in its ordinary things, loving one another. And it's beautiful. It's a whole lot more beautiful than figuring out how to get everybody up here on this stage. Because this is not where the kingdom is built. The kingdom is built where you are. And we want to live into that. And we want to pray into that. And so as we close here today, I want to pray for that and ask the question of what would it look like if everyone here felt and experienced equipping and empowering in the Holy Spirit to live that out where you are. Even today as we close and we move into the meal and things, I encourage you to meet and connect. And if you want to find a way to step into that, we want to help you do that, whether that's through the welcome wagon, through serving here on Sundays, or we figure out how the Holy Spirit is discerning the work He's doing through your life, where you are week in and week out. Help us, help us equip and empower you for where God is leading you. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, I I feel the weight of significance of what can be when the church lives into this. And I, I confess that we are not there. It's hard. But Lord, would you move and shift and would you shape our community, our church, to be an empowering people? a more empowering people. And God, for those of us who have been wounded or injured or have experienced pain in the context of the church in the past where they have had gifts but were just used as cogs in a wheel, I pray for healing. I pray, God, that as we step into maturity together as a church, that it's not about a person or a group. It is about the whole community living into this. So I pray, Holy Spirit, fall on us afresh. Fall in a room like this, but fall as we drive home, as we go to our jobs and schools, where you send us out. Empower us for the work of the ministry where we are. Lead us, give us clarity in this, Holy Spirit. We love you and we thank you. In the name of Jesus.